Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Untethering Shame podcast. I'm your host, Kira Wackett, and I'm honored to introduce you to our guest today, Cam Lee Small. Cam is a transracial international adoptee from Korea, an experience that informs and inspires his current professional work as an author and licensed professional clinical counselor. He formed his own private practice, Therapy Redeemed, in 2018 to help raise awareness and respond to the mental health needs of adoptees and their families wherever they may be in their adoptee journey. Now, I'm super excited to be connecting with him today because not only is this the opportunity for us to come back together after our master's work and going through our program together, and it's now been what feels like decades, but it's, you know, seven or eight years, but we also are really going to get to dive deeper into a story that I think is so special, understanding what Cam has gone through personally, but also really his unique ability to decenter himself from a story and think more broadly about the changes we need to make in the world, the ways that we can invite curiosity, attach ourselves to that sense of exploration and understanding of everybody else's story rather than existing in that place of defense. So with that, get cozy, as Everly always tells me when we sit down to read a book, find a place that you can really tune in and listen, and let's dive in. Welcome, Cam. I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you so much for having me, Kira. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, it is. When I sent my email to you a while back, I know you were about to head out of the country for a very long time. You were going on a really big trip. And so it was so exciting to hear you commit to wanting to have this conversation. And then also to know that you were about to go on a really big family journey. And so then coming back and having some time to process that. So I'm super pumped. I think my my hype has been building for months since that initial email. And so Yeah, I like to start, you know, therapist to therapist. This is something that I think you can appreciate. I like to really center every conversation around one, just doing one word check-ins. So if you could describe how you're feeling right now, mentally, emotionally, physically, whatever speaks to you with one word, what would that be? Excitement. Mm, Yeah, I, I feel like when we were, when I was hitting record, well, you know, I was telling you offline that I had a few Riverside recording issues this morning. So there was a little bit of anxiety mixed into it, but just this is a topic I remember. And again, when we were driving in your car, when we were going to Milwaukee years ago for that field trip that we were doing in our program, it was really the first time that I ever got a chance to talk about adoption and just consideration points, because it wasn't my experience in the world. I didn't know much about it. I only knew a few people very distantly that had gone through it. And so, but there were things that you and I hit on that just really resonated with me and made me think about the world a bit from a bit more of an expansive view, I think is what it was. And so, yeah, I would say excitement is really echoed in how I'm showing up. And I think also kind of determined. I'm determined to feel a little uncomfortable in our conversation because I really want to learn about ways that I might be missing the mark or not thinking about things fully. And I think you do a really great job Mm. of giving people a safe and compassionate way to do that. So I look forward to that too. So tell me, you know, you, 
you lead with it on your website, in your stories, you talk about your personal experience quite a bit in the work you've done. But just for listeners meeting you for the first time, can you tell us a little bit about your own experiences as an adoptee and kind of how that laid the foundation for you to start thinking about wanting to do work professionally to support other people in their experiences? I come into this space as a Korean adoptee. And even the way that I share that story has evolved over the years. I started to share that I was born in Korea whenever someone asked me my story or my adoption story, um, kind of like maybe during our master's program or shortly after, because um, I, I learned, I realized that when I just launched from, I was adopted from Korea in a way and maybe not intentionally or maliciously, but in a way I was erasing part of my story that was so important that I didn't have a chance to explore when I was younger. I didn't have the desire. Um, maybe even I didn't have access to spaces to help me explore that. Mm -hmm. So now it would be, you know, I was born in Korea. I lived there for three years with my mom and dad. Mm -hmm. And after my dad's death, my mom went through a process of decision-making and figuring out what next mm -hmm. steps were, ultimately decided to place me um, for international adoption. So there's a relinquishment process, um, two foster care placements, and then ultimately a, a placement with a white family in Wisconsin. So getting um, escorted onto an airplane, flying 13, 14 hours, landing in Chicago O'Hare Airport, and being placed into the arms of this tall white guy, who's my dad. Of course, I, I love him. But running back onto the airplane, completely terrified. And you and I mm -hmm. know the research and just what we know about trauma and traumatic events. Yeah. And through you know our training and professional licensure and this, all, this whole process, now trying to ask especially members in the local church, perhaps, because that's where I've been connected. But to ask, is there more to the story than we rescued you? Are there more needs that are involved that go beyond love is enough? Mm. We don't see color. So that's what I bring into this work. And I certainly stand on the shoulder of giants. There are um, generations of adoptee advocates who've been at this uh, before I was even born. And it's, a, it's an honor to continue learning from them, but also adding to the, mm -hmm. the labor, the literature, the community activism that, that, that's out there right now. So that kind of brings me to you and I today. And that's where this sort of like excitement, like, what are you and I going to talk about? What's wow. going to come up here? And determination to to really meet that goal of asking, are there different ways yeah. we can think about this compared to the way we've always been thinking about it? Well, I think even the way that you just reframed how you tell your story, and again, it wasn't probably conscious, it was just how you introduced your story. And now that difference of there's so much context to your life before you were formally adopted, before you came off that plane, before you lived in Wisconsin, before you were in this, you know, tall white man's arms. And I mean, I even am, am filtering this through the lens of my daughter's three and a half. So roughly the same age as you were going through this. And I know you have little ones as well. And Everly grew up during COVID. So her connection and safety around other people is already very limited by that. And there was a woman the other day that was talking to her and just found her 
very endearing, very sweet little kid and was like, how would you like to come home with me? And Everly like ran inside of our house. She was so scared that this person was going to take her from me, take her from this person that she's known her whole life. And, and I was like very quick in my head. I wanted to be like, oh, she's just kidding. It's, you know, it's okay. It's not, it's not a big deal. And then I was like, oh my goodness. And I had sort of the, and probably primed knowing we were having our conversation, but just thinking about that. And now as you're describing this experience, it's like we erase, I think for comfort, maybe mm-hmm. the, the experiences of the little ones and the internalization of these things, like you had attachment. And then you were ripped from attachment. And now you can speak about your adoptive parents with so much love and kindness. But there's a period where that wasn't, you didn't feel safe. You didn't feel secure. Your entire body was in a place of hypervigilance. And it's almost like we take that part out of it because now you're safe and you're rescued and think about how much better your life is. But that's not how your brain experiences it. Your brain experiences it differently. Exactly. And we ask how does shame play a role in that? And yes, we want to give grace and compassion to adoptive parents and communities that maybe didn't have the resources or the language or the training on the front end as caregivers. Um, I mean, right. you and I, like we, we studied this for years. Mm-hmm. So if I'm a local a church member in the congregation and you know I've I've been sort of like called by God and just have faith and you know contribute uh, that's great and that contribution and that charity without the information without the informed care mm-hmm. it can shortchange that child in some ways so if that child starts mm-hmm. to have questions who are my birth parents? Where did I come from? Mm -hmm. Or what does that question mean when someone asks me, uh, who are my real parents? I I don't understand that. Or I I don't know if I don't want to celebrate gotcha day this year, maybe. Mm -hmm. And, and if there's uh, an atmosphere that um, sort of like welcomes that dialogue, awesome, because they get to practice thinking and feeling about it and responding to it in in that containment space. Mm -hmm of the relationship with caregivers. And that's what you and I call attachment in some ways. If that's not there, if it's, Hey, look at everything we've done for you. Are you kidding me? We loved you the past 15, mm-hmm. 16 years. And now you want to ask questions or you want to like challenge us. And it mm-hmm. could bring up feelings of defensiveness w- w- with an adoptive family. And that's where an adoptee mm-hmm. might internalize the message I have feelings of sadness or confusion or curiosity, but that's not acceptable here. So I'm a bad mm-hmm. person. Shame. Right. right? And, right. Or I'm guilty. I, I shouldn't have initiated this birth search. Oh, what am I doing? Now my mom and dad. Feel- right. I'm hurting my adoptive parents. It, yes. Yeah, I'm the cause of that. Yes. Yeah. So we want to mm-hmm. interrogate that process and ask, what are ways that we want to provide support for children? Uh, teens or whatever age and stage there are they're at in their journey to Mm -hmm. say yes we welcome this of course why why wouldn't you and i'm not saying every adoptee wants Mm -hmm. exactly the same thing but we're asking yes of course that's welcomed here i'm wondering too if you know i tried to put the hat on for the adoptive parents to think about okay so what leads to that 
defensiveness. And part of me wonders if it's, you know, again, I can only speak to the biases within the U.S. and sort of the stories that we've been told, but it's this idea you know, we have a laundry list when we're born of who we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to live, what success mm-hmm. looks like. And obviously, we know a lot of that is rooted in systems of oppression, racism, sexism, all of those pieces. But there's still an, an implicit bias that we have. I'm supposed to grow up and do X, Y, and Z. I'm supposed to have kids. And so for a lot of people, for whatever reasons, whether it is medical or otherwise, that they don't have biological children of their own and they adopt, sometimes I'm wondering too, if it's, they are longing for their story to feel complete, to be okay, to be back in line. Cause again, they're supposed to have been able to do this. So there's already a tick mark against them Mm -hmm. that they had to adopt. What does that mean about them that they couldn't have their own kids? And so there's some protection of, well, I'm rescuing someone. And so that's their way of dealing with their own shame is this, you know, maybe not processing some of these pieces, but then it's like, they need it to be glued together in a way that it feels like, well, this is my family. This is it. And if anything happens, if the bio parents are involved in some way, shape or form, that's a threat to my story. Now I don't have a place. And it's a reminder of the thing that they have been kind of trying to push back since before they even adopted that child. And so I wonder if it's there's, I'm assuming for some people, it might be malicious and conscious, but I'm assuming for a lot of adoptive parents, it's this subconscious kind of manifestation of their shame of their defenses around their fear of not being chosen by their child, if they give them more opportunities to explore their birth parents or other parents, other caregivers. And so it's, I'm just going to make you feel bad about it or kind of push away that conversation because I need to feel secure that you're not leaving me because I was, I was lucky enough to have you, but in my mind, it's, I'm more afraid to lose you than I can think about the love that we have built. It's protective. I really appreciate what you said. Hey, there's some fear here. There's a threat Mm -hmm. and this defensiveness. um, Yeah. Like you said, it's not malicious. I'm trying to protect this idea that we're a family and that we're doing the right Mm -hmm. thing that we've fallen in line. Right. And Mm. now you're potentially compromising that. Yeah. And what are other people going to think? What's the judgment? What does it say about me that you aren't happy enough here? What is because it feels personal? And then, and I think, I mean, I'm sure there are times I will do this with Everly as well. And I think about this even, you know, if somebody wants to give her a hug or there was a kid that wanted to play with her, she didn't want to play with that kid. She doesn't particularly like playing. That kid always wants to pick her up and doesn't really listen to her boundaries. And they were really disappointed when Everly said, no, thank you. And I'm having this conversation with her about how you're not responsible to take care of anybody else's emotional needs. Mm. You are responsible to your values and showing up with kindness, with compassion, but you're not responsible to make that other kid feel okay in that moment. That's theirs to go through. And I'm sure there are times that I have subconsciously made her responsible for my emotional needs and I will. And so I can't imagine how much more complex it is in those moments where, again, you said we've studied this and I still miss the mark in my own personal life. And so thinking about these parents, these caregivers that probably have never even really thought about that. And it's the recognition of you are putting your children in a position to be responsible for your 
emotional self, Mm -hmm. for your shame, for your fear, for your trauma. And that's not theirs. Right. But they're in a position of powerlessness. They're in that position of their own shame, their own fear, their own, well, you rescued me. So I should just be grateful. So all of those layers make it where they don't even realize that's probably what's happening or don't have the language to say it. And so then it's, well, it would just be easier if I learned to deal with this emptiness, if I learned to deal with these questions and if I silence that voice. And it sounds like for you, you've seen the product of what happens if they don't get the space to explore that. And so now you're thinking, no, I've watched too many people do this. Maybe you've done it to some degree where you silenced those questions, those wants. And we have to figure out a different way. Yes. We're talking about a restoration of power here. We're thinking through Mm -hmm. the process, the dynamics of power and control in the context of, let's say, for example, a white adoptive parent and a child of color who is adopted from, you know, a different country or internationally, um, but transracially. So there's that mm. aspect um, situated, located in the the, his, the history of, of race and power dynamics. There's mm-hmm. also the parentification, I think you were mentioning, like, I'm a mm-hmm. little child, but I see my mom cry when I ask questions. So well, what's, what's my mm-hmm. responsibility here? Or I'm a teenager and my parents aren't allowing me to exercise some autonomy. I want to know a little bit more about my birth records. Could I see that? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the the systemic, structural, institutional piece of adoption as a default, it must be a win-win-win for everyone. The mm-hmm. birth family, the adoptive parents get their child so they can fall in line, the adoptees so they can not grow up in, quote-unquote, poverty, or you would have been homeless. Right. or it, it, right. Because that's the default, the default is silence. If there was more awareness and an expectation, an expectation of that consciousness that we're, we're all going after and no one's perfect. We're all learning this. That's why mm-hmm. it's driven by grace. But if the consciousness piece was uh, valued, then the default would be how many more resources can we have available at the ready mm-hmm. so that when this very normal, normative developmental stage comes up of curiosity um, mm-hmm. of, of, of struggling emotions, of uh, individuation. And, and when it comes up, we can have something so helpful to provide for them. And we can be um, collaborative. We can even somehow try to follow their lead, whatever that means to co-create that um, in a family context. But but that's the shift that we're trying to ask for um, in the community at large and especially in uh, faith-related context because adoption is so prevalent uh, among the church community. Yeah, and I think a lot about that too. Where have you read the Bell Hooks book, All About Love? Um, that's on my list. I actually have it over here. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting book. The chapters are interesting because you don't have to read the whole book. Like each chapter is its own kind of deep dive. It's almost like a textbook, but it's written more. I don't know, like a self-help book. But one of the things that she talked about in there is the difference between love and abuse and how much dysfunction that we accept and basically how our scope of what's love gets expanded over time. Mm -hmm. And so if we think about the context where 
you know, I talked to my father-in-law when he was here visiting and thinking about my mother-in-law or my mom when she was a kid. If we think about like physical punishment, you know, using a belt on somebody, spanking somebody, and then saying, I, I do this because I love you. This hurts me more than you. Well, as you get older, you start to think, well, love is that pain. Love is the punishment. And and love is about power dynamics and me falling in line. And so when we can kind of look at that in the context of someone's view of the world and how they recognize love and how it's tethered to abuse and dysfunctional interpersonal relationships and dynamics. And so I think about this in the context too of how much... I just even had this vision of me when I was, I mean, I still do this where it's like, I'm your best friend and I need to be your primary person. And I'm threatened if anybody else is your best friend. You know, there was like the friendship bracelets. I've claimed you, I've tagged you, you are wearing that. And that tells everybody else that you're mine because the threat is if there's more than me, there's a problem. And I think it's that piece of it. Something in there is sitting with me around Again, the parent, the adoptive parent experience then of if there's more resources, like that question you just phrased is beautiful. What would it be like to have more, more resources, more community, more capacity, more Mm. of a connection, a bridge? And yet we are conditioned to believe that anything outside of us being the sole person, even though we resent it and we're burnt out and we're constantly complaining about how much we've got on our plate, anything else would be a threat. Because then I won't be chosen because there couldn't possibly be love for me at this exact same level and then an extension of love to other people. Mm-hmm. So it's, I don't know where I'm going with it, but it's sitting with me because that feels really relevant in this context. Yes. One of the reasons I named my clinic, my practice, Therapy Redeemed, is because historically, mental health support wasn't included or acceptable in the church. Why? Because Jesus is enough. If you have faith, why are you struggling? I want I want to challenge that status quo to say, well, mental health is such a vital piece. And maybe you can even practice your faith in a context of mental health, communion, support, humility. What you just said is it, 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 it hits the nail on the head. I can't do it all myself. I admit, I confess, I'm not God, and I (laughs) shouldn't be. No one is. We have a fellowship together because there are needs, okay? So if we can be Mm. honest about that, instead of trying to put up this front that I am, we are the perfect Christian family. We can adopt children from here and there, and we trust God so much that we don't even need mental health support. We don't even need to see color, okay? Right. Right. Praise the Lord. So what we're trying to do is say, well, let's turn that and let's find new directions. Why? Because there are children, there are adoptees that are suffering because of that pride and arrogance. Okay. Yeah. And that's what we're going after here. Therapy redeemed. So what you're saying about love, um, your mom loved you so much. She gave you up for adoption. Right. Well, then. Jeepers, who am I now to question that process, to go and look for her or to, to ask where she's still at? Does that mean that I'm questioning her love? Does that mean that I'm right. not grateful enough? So we want to say, well, um, there are other systemic processes and realities at place because someone could easily say, um, gosh, the community 
loved this family so much that they poured their resources and support to keep them intact. So that relinquishment mm. wasn't even an option. So that the family was preserved. So that the child remained and remains attached to the legacy of the community. All of the pieces that come with being part of a, a family system. So, I mean, mm. that's just a slice of it, but that that's so true. And that's where we get that, the violence of love, you know? Um, Oof. we, we, we love, we want to love the world so much that if there are any quote unquote orphans out there, or if they're struggling families, we'll take your children. All right. Yeah. And there's some hypocrisy in there because if we take your children, quote unquote, take your children, and then just completely dismiss that, oh, this child is from another part of the world and the community into which you were adopted actually views people who look like you in a particular way, they treat you maybe differently too. If we just ignore that, mm -hmm. well, again, part of that child essentially goes missing because they're learning I can't ask for help when it comes to da -da 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 -da, race, ethnicity, mm -hmm. stop playing the race card, little guy. Everyone gets made mm -hmm. fun of. I was whatever, quote, whatever. I was made fun of just like you. You got to just suck it up and, you know, just forgive and forget. So, yeah. There are so many more layers mm. that are possible um, avenues through which we can offer that support and love if we were open to some of these uh, different ways to think about it. I'm really like, as you're talking about that, I'm just really marinating in that love as a, to a violent tool, essentially, and the, the violence that can exist in that. And that is, I think, such a powerful way to think about it. And it... I think people hear it and then they, like, I can feel myself even be like the hairs standing up. Like I'm uncomfortable with this idea because it also means thinking about the ways that we've done it because it's not these very, you know, when people talk about overt versus covert racism, narcissism, whatever it is, so much of what you're trying to address is the covert side we can recognize some of the overt things that are problematic. And obviously you want to address those too, but it's those covert pieces. It's the, it's hidden in something. You don't quite hear it and go, Ooh, that's, that's not okay. That's not, that's actually pretty shame driven. You hear it and you go, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. They loved you so much. This is, this is helping. This is what we're doing. And so it's really tricky. And it means realizing that we all do that. And I know, you know, a big thing for you and you started talking about it with, the name of your practice, you have an overlap in the work that you're doing. So you really are in the biblical sense of working with things too. You really you want to talk about it through the lens of faith. I know faith is really important to you. Where do you see the biggest resistance within that community that you're working with? And did you ever kind of did you ever find yourself struggling with your faith because of some of those resistances and your own story? Yeah. The love as a violent tool, um, being able to explore through that, there's a, a paper written by Dr. Kit Myers that talks about, I think it's called the violence of love, um, transracial adoption. But thinking through, you know, I'm not trying to come into the church and start throwing rocks or pointing fingers as if I'm this perfect person. Um, I'm coming, uh, alongside folks that, you know, identify with a faith background 
to say, I, I want to learn more about this with you if you're an right. adoptive parent and with you if you're an adoptee. And then also personally, because uh, this is a gray space. So sometimes the barrier could include, um, hey, Cam, the language that you're using, it's too woke, for lack of a better mm. term. But you're being too mm -hmm. political, Cam, or you're being too divisive. Why do you want to mm -hmm. come into our little small group and, and start dividing people up by race and, and color? And, and another challenge would be, okay, I might come to a, another group and they're not Christian. Um, you're using too much spiritual language. Mm -hmm. Don't talk, come, come here, tell us Jesus is the answer, Cam. Like that. We, 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 we want to know um, uh, how to do this in language that hasn't been used to oppress us. We know that the, mm. the, the, the scripture has been weaponized to enact very harmful actions, practices, regulations, culture. So too spiritual for, you know, so there's like a third space that I'm, I mean, I'm still trying to navigate that that's part of my, mm -hmm. um, I guess the growing, the, 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 the journey of growth for that. What I've been mm -hmm. finding though, is in general, um, the, the folks that invite me in, uh, adoptive parents wise, they're just genuinely curious to figure out like, Hey, how can we do this better? Like, yeah, of course, overtly, no one wants to harm their children. No way. Right. I, I, well, no. Um, so they're, they want to have a dialogue. Let's put yeah. some ideas on the table. Let's um, engage in self-reflection and just be open to exploring some of these new meanings for us. And that's generally the inroad or the bridge to having these conversations. Um, and uh, as an adoptee who's also, you know, just honestly trying to support and cultivate and contribute to the activism and the mm -hmm. communities who are doing, um, making all sorts of changes for the better. I want to come in with that heart of um, like just curiosity and, and listening and learning and, yeah. and asking, how can I support, you know, like, yes, I have a faith background um, and I want to meet folks where they're at and just ask like in general, are there some common values that we hold like peace, mm -hmm. kindness, justice, all of these things that where can we meet in the commons and, and work together in concert for the health and wellness of the adoptee community? How can we do right. that? So that's kind of like the angle that, that I'm traveling these days. Well, yeah, it sounds like, again, sort of the, the idea of people thinking you're too much or the fear that you're going to push your own agenda or beliefs and really trying to recognize there are probably some ways you can change how you talk about stuff that can make it feel less that way, but also having to sit in that resistance a little bit to realize, oh, that's protective for you. There's a fear for you. Like you said, for some people, maybe around faith, it might be because you've seen it used as a weapon against you. You've seen people use it to reinforce you needing to fall in line and be a certain way. Yes. And of course, you're not going to be trusting of that. And so let's also think about that from that being a human application of religion 
rather than us talking about faith and the central point and those tenets and really getting back to what guides you, what's bigger than you. And I think there's, I'm very open about the fact that I don't know what I believe, but I know there ha- there's something bigger than me. And it feels like the sort of pursuit of living on earth is the constant sort of iterative process of recognizing the world is bigger than me. So we're not centering ourselves in every story and also realize, realizing that it's not my job to know. Mm. It's not my job to know all the answers to everything. And again, that's sort of the pride, the ego, the pieces you mentioned before that I think are the human destructive forces and releasing that. And so I used to be very scared of those conversations because I saw the way that faith and religion was used as a way to make all the bullshit that happened outside of Sunday church service be okay because I went to church. So my family's fine. So we're, we're good Christians. And then realizing that again, that's the human application. That's there's pieces of that, that I am unfairly taking and putting on the faith side. And so you're really, it sounds like trying to open that door for people and explore that. I'm curious now you know, you've had your practice for, you said launched it in 2018, but you've been doing work within the adoptee community much longer than the start of your practice. And you've had your own experiences that you've gone through. What was your relationship like with your adoptive parents during that process? Did you feel like you had to go through some of those hurdles you're now helping other people with and then come to the other side? And, and what role do they have now in all this work that you're doing? My adoptive parents have been supportive pretty much the whole way through. And what I mean by that is I think when you, when you and I met, I was working with Holt International and yep. um, serving as camp director or volunteering with adoptee camps. And, you know, I was volunteering with adoptee organizations for, for years before um, that. I think for me, the, the, the milestone moment where I needed their support that sticks out to me was when I was asking for my adoption paperwork because I wanted to initiate birth search. And what I remember most is that there was no resistance. They went into the office at their house, grabbed the folders and gave them to me and offered up whatever they could to help. So, Mm -hmm. and, and I don't want to, um, uh, so, so that not all adoptees have that luxury of having the AP support. Also, not all adoptees have records that uh, just have any records to, to even ask for. Mm. So my story, I don't want to, um, I, I appreciate what you said in the kind of beginning of like, as a clinician, yes, I can disclose part of my story to just be transparent right. and kind of lead part of that, but also decentering enough to say, but what's your story? And what's your context right. and how can I serve that? So going to Korea and coming back and processing that, I processed um, just my experience with them uh, to the extent of, hey, you know, this is what happened and kind of matter of fact and kind of how I experienced it emotionally and some thoughts. It's uh, with the adoptee community, though, that mm-hmm. that's where I felt the 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 deeper, more meaningful connection about what does this mean for me as a person um, in my identity as an adoptee, as a Korean American adoptee, as an, an Asian male, like all of these pieces here, mm. that's where I found that process. But yes, the, the um, support that they were able to give me through birth search 
so helpful. And then um, conversations since then around, um, you know, events, uh, local, mm-hmm. national events, um, race, all of those pieces, they've, um, you know, been pretty willing to talk through that with me when we get the chance. So, you know, at the risk, I, I don't want to over romanticize my story because yes, I did meet my birth family and there was right. a process, but I don't want to make that like the the sort of the standard. Um, I definitely want to acknowledge that there are pieces of that that not all adoptees have access to. Yeah, and I think it's that piece of knowing, you know, when I was working more clinically with eating disorders, that was always a thing or with trauma as well. I I had a lot of clients that were struggling with parents with addiction. And so as a person with a mom who struggled with multiple addictions, I would have these pieces where you'd have to recognize there is sometimes a degree of connection that's really helpful. Like once somebody knew when it's like, no, the reason I can call you out at the table right now, because I know what you're doing Mm. is an eating disorder behavior is because I've done it. Like I see it differently. And I also completely understand why you don't want to give this up. And that makes sense to me. And so when you have other people come in and say something to you that feels like it is dismissive of this, it's a relationship in many ways, of course, you're going to dig your heels in. But then you have to be careful because there's ways where like you're suggesting it, it can, it can become about your story. And it can be, you start to, I think subconsciously you can filter through your story if you're not careful. And again, just recognizing that what are the shared tenets of my story with the people I'm working with that allow me to ask questions in a different way, but also how do I keep all the details out of it? Because it's also a way that other people can distract. They can distract from their own experiences through your journey. They can become fearful because, you know, like you said, you had not every part of your story was positive, but you had a lot of outcomes that people see as the most ideal. Being able to maybe meet their birth families, having the support of their adoptive parents, you had these things. And so then if somebody else hears it and they don't experience you as being able to kind of ask the questions, understand their story, they're like, well, you wouldn't get it because I don't have parents like you. I'm not going to have that experience. And so it is, it's got to be a tricky thing because again, you're not hiding your story, but you aren't doing this purely based on your story and your understanding of the world. And that's why you're really trying to come from that place of curiosity of, I don't know exactly what you went through. And I can take this sort of global emphasis on, these are some of the things that I know aren't helping anybody, regardless of the details and how I want to change the conversation. So I know you're working on a book and you are there's really this kind of exploration around loss, trauma, the healing within all of that. And how do we come to that place of empowerment? So can you tell us a little bit about kind of that new layer that you're bringing in with your book and kind of what people can expect? Because I know there are people listening to this going, okay, I'm ready. I want to learn more about my story, about my loved one's story, my friends, you know, people are going to be ready. So what What's coming out with this book and how is that kind of this added piece into the work you're doing? This book is right now, so far as I'm editing it, it, it's written for an adoptee, an adult adoptee who identifies as Christian or with some kind of faith, spiritual background, 
who is curious about looking at adoption in a different way. So mm. that guides me because it doesn't mean that I'm trying to come in with like a thousand references and knowing all of the history of like every single person who has contributed to the, the progress that we've made in, in activism. And yet I want to invite adoptees who are curious, who are at this stage in life, uh, generally like sort of like emerging adulthood, like mm -hmm. college age, adult, maybe sandwich generation, um, where they're starting to like wade into the water of this sort of what, what's called adoptee consciousness. And, and that's a model that I, I can share the, the resource with you. Mm -hmm. um, but that was put together by some scholars that are highly regarded in the adoptee community. But the idea that, you know, we, we might feel lucky to have been adopted and it might feel uncomfortable to consider that there are other layers to this story, to my story, to your story. And I'm curious because I've noticed some, some situations in my life that don't fully make sense to me, or mm. I'm going through a life stage or a transition and it's bringing up some, some curiosities and wonders that I didn't even know I had. And I'm not sure if it's okay to have these. I'm starting to even maybe question my faith. So this is written for those folks and it's an invitation, um, you know, for, for continued dialogue because I can't write everything in the world about adoption in this one book to all right. adoptees. Um, but this is like an entry point. It's a slice um, for folks who identify with a, a faith background who are curious about loss. What is trauma? Mm. I've heard of that word before, but I only thought that was for people who go to war. You know? mm -hmm. But what, what is mental health? I thought that was just for crazy people, quote unquote, mm -hmm. right? And now you're telling me it's okay for me to feel sad about adoption? Mm -hmm. This is new. Okay, uh, tell me more. So I want mm -hmm. to definitely give credit to, um, you know, the, the the pioneers who've allowed this conversation and, and, you know, do that in the book. And I want to somehow try um, to merge the, the the spiritual with the clinical as it relates to adoption. It's, it's a tall order. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many other books out there are, are doing this, but I really do, um, you know, feel privileged that, uh, a Christian adoptee would invite me into their headspace to explore, oh, okay, this this person is an adoptee. They're talking about Jesus, but they're also trying to challenge the status quo somehow. And they're giving mm -hmm. me some language to, to think about. That's really the the place where my book will sit for right now. And I'm excited to see, you know, what kind of discussions come out of that. Yeah, that's the I think really cool part when you're when you do the kind of work that we do, where the power, there's power in your book, because you know, there's the possibility it can affect change, it can, like you said, just coming into their headspace, that privilege of doing that and being able to maybe kick up some questions and curiosity, but so much of it is then the discussion that comes from it, because that's really where that change can come in. Yes. And so whether there's a group of people that are reading it in a book club kind of format, or it's you being able to hold these kind of chats around some of these pieces, it's, uh, giving somebody a tool to, or a prompt in a lot of ways, the book being the prompt to go deeper into that exploration. And so I like that sort of yeah. permission giving 
that unfortunately for a lot of us, we wait until it's given by somebody else, whether it is the format of a resource or somebody saying something, but then hopefully them, the reader, the individual really internalizing that sense of permission giving for themselves. I can give myself permission to feel what I'm feeling and to hold both. There's a, if you don't have it for your kids yet, it's a book called I'm Hap Sad Today. It's fantastic. And it's all about how we can feel more than one feeling at a given time. And my daughter loves it because it's about this, this kid's exploration around sometimes I feel more than one emotion. And that's the truth. I can feel grateful and happy and loved by my adoptive parents. I can yes. also feel sad and uncertain and confused and shame driven because of this as well. And those can exist at the same time. And so I think for a lot of us, it's just, it's got to be one. This is exactly how I feel, what I think. And if it's coded this way, it can't be that. And so I think it's for me. So I guess my question to you as we wrap up is what are you taking from this conversation and what do you want others to take? And I'm, I'm really centering on, I think for me, that's what I'm taking is how can I explore I don't even want to say duality because it's more than two ex, you know, experiences, thoughts, perspectives, but how do I really broaden my view of things to understand that love is violence, that way that to ask questions with curiosity and to be okay with how I might be perpetuating things that in my story are okay, but they might not be for someone else. So what comes up for you when you think about what you want to take and what you want the listeners to take? You talked about permission just now, and that's so helpful. With the book, especially, you know, I want folks to be able to read that and learn something from it, and then it inspires some kind of action. I mean, not that you have to do or not that we're, um, you know, the the conditions of worth are based on what we do or produce. Right. But, you know, uh, so much of our life is going to be about, like, learning new information and how will that inform my behaviors, my action, my yeah. relationships, the way that I'm going to show up for the people that matter to me and the way that I show up for myself. So, I mean, with our conversation, it's, um, and even that language, you know, that I would inspire someone that our conversation in the book too, would inspire someone to uh, feel the permission to ask questions mm-hmm. that maybe before they thought weren't acceptable or were a little out there or odd that they take that permission, they receive it for themselves and um, they step into a sense of empowerment um, in a way that they choose is appropriate. Not because you and I said it in a podcast or uh, someone wrote in a book, but they're working that that out for themselves. You know, that's um, uh, the, the existential sort of mm-hmm. worldviews that there's that sense of meaning and freedom and responsibility and connection that, yeah, what does that mean for me? And I get to decide, wow, I'm not just a product of these saviors rescuing me, that finally I'm a person. Right. I, I'm not just a, an object now to fulfill someone else's would or, or should, whatever they were supposed to do. I'm a person. I'm a human mm-hmm. with feelings and thoughts. And I get to decide, make some decisions about stuff. Wow, mm-hmm. you know that they can step into that, uh, knowing that we're cheering for them. 
that, that they're not mm. alone doing that. And that that's a um, part of the human journey. I love that. And what a beautiful way for us to end. And I think just, again, that I think exploration, that sense of determinedness that I had coming into this of just wanting to feel I I want to get to a place. I think I, I growing up, I was very much the performer and I had to learn how to learn honestly after our master's program, because I was really just performing to get an A. Like there were things I would do conversations that would change me. But from the school side, it's I know how to do this. I'm just getting to this point. And so I think for so many of us, it's the invitation to just learn, which means the invitation to get it wrong. And that includes how we Ooh, approach our yeah. views, our world, our actions. And so I love this. This has been incredible. Cam, thank you so much. I'm going to have all of the links that you shared with me in advance. I'm going to look up that paper from Kit Meyer as well that you mentioned. So I'll get that in there for people that want to check that out. For all of you listening, again, what would it look like to give yourself permission to explore something different, to invite that curiosity, to exist in that space of the hap sad feeling of I can feel different things at different times about the same situation? If you are as inspired as I am to keep learning from Cam, check out the show notes. They are constantly posting all these amazing things. There's their social media. Cam, your social media is incredible. I love the way you break things down for people to just, again, invite curiosity, reframe how we're thinking. So go there, everyone. I can't wait for you all to connect with Cam and all of his work and everything that's going on. And I will plan to see you all back here next Sunday. 